Chapter Five of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Five. Their necromantic forms in vain haunt us on the tented plain. We bid these spectre shapes avaunt. Astaroth and Termagant. Wharton. The most profound silence, the deepest darkness, continued to brood for more than an hour over the chaplain, which we left the knight of the leopard still kneeling, alternatively expressing thanks to heaven and gratitude to his lady for the boon which had been vouchsafed to him. His own safety, his own destiny, for which he was at all times little anxious, had not now the weight of a grain of dust in his reflections. He was in the neighbourhood of Lady Edith. He had received tokens of her grace. He was in a place hallowed by relics of the most awful sanctity. A Christian soldier, a devoted lover, could fear nothing, think nothing, but his duty to heaven and his devoir to his lady. At the lapse of the space of time which we have noticed, a shrill whistle, like that with which a falconer calls his hawk, was heard to ring sharply through the vaulted chapel. It was a sound ill-suited to the place, and reminded Sir Kenneth how necessary it was he should be upon his guard. He started from his knee, and laid his hand upon his poignard. A creaking sound, as of screws or pulleys, succeeded, and a light streaming upwards, as from an opening in the floor, showed that a trap-door had been raised or depressed. In less than a minute a long, skinny arm, partly naked, partly clothed in a sleeve of red samite, arose out of the aperture, holding a lamp as high as it could stretch upwards. And the figure to which the arm belonged ascended step by step to the level of the chapel floor. The form and face of the being who thus presented himself were those of a frightful dwarf, with a large head, a cape fantastically adorned with three peacock feathers, a dress of red samite, the richness of which rendered his ugliness more conspicuous, distinguished by gold bracelets and armlets, and a white silk sash, in which he wore a gold-hilted dagger. This singular figure had in his left hand a kind of broom, so soon as he stepped from the aperture through which he arose, he stood still, and, as if to show himself more distinctly, moved the lamp which he held slowly over his face and person, successively illuminating his wild and fantastic features, and his misshapen but nervous limbs. Though disproportioned in person, the dwarf was not so distorted as to argue any want of strength or activity. While Sir Kenneth gazed on this disagreeable object, the popular creed occurred to his remembrance concerning the gnomes, or earthly spirits which make their abode in the caverns of the earth. And so much did this figure correspond with ideas he had formed of their appearance, that he looked on it with disgust, mingled not indeed with fear, but that sort of awe which the presence of a supernatural creature may infuse into the most steady bosom. The dwarf again whistled, and summoned from beneath a companion. This second figure ascended in the same manner as the first, but it was a female arm in this second instance 
which upheld the lamp from the subterranean vault out of which these present mints arose. And it was a female form, much resembling the first in shape and proportions, which slowly emerged from the floor. Her dress was also of red samite, fantastically cut and flounced, as if she had been dressed for some exhibition of mimes or jugglers. And with the same minuteness which her predecessor had exhibited, she passed the lamp over her face and person, which seemed to rival the males in ugliness. But with all this most unfavourable exterior, there was one trait in the features of both, which argued alertness and intelligence in the most uncommon degree. This arose from the brilliancy of their eyes, which, deep-set beneath black and shaggy brows, gleamed with a lustre which, like that in the eye of the toad, seemed to make some amends for the extreme ugliness of countenance and person. Sir Kenneth remained as if spellbound, while this unlovely pair, moving round the chapel close to each other, appeared to perform the duty of sweeping it, like menials. But as they used only one hand, the floor was not much benefited by the exercise, which they piled, with such oddity of gestures and manner, as befitted their bizarre and fantastic appearance. When they approached near to the night in the course of their occupation, they ceased to use their brooms, and, placing themselves side by side, directly opposite to Sir Kenneth, they again slowly shifted the lights which they held, so as to allow him distinctly to survey features which were not rendered more agreeable by being brought nearer, and to observe the extreme quickness and keenness with which their black and glittering eyes flashed back the light of the lamps. They then turned the gleam of both lights upon the knight, and having accurately surveyed him, turned their faces to each other, and set up a loud yelling laugh which resounded in his ears. The sound was so ghastly that Sir Kenneth started at hearing it, and hastily demanded, in the name of God, who they were who profound that holy place, and elrich exclamations. "'I am the dwarf Nectabanus,' said the abortion-seeming male, in a voice corresponding to his figure, and resembling the voice of the night-crow more than any sound which is heard by daylight. "'And I am Guenevar, his lady and his love,' replied the female, in tones which, being shriller, were yet wilder than those of her companion. "'Wherefore are you here?' again demanded the knight, scarcely yet assured that they were human beings which he saw before him. "'I am,' replied the male dwarf, with much assumed gravity and dignity, "'the twelfth imam. I am Mohammed Mahadi, the guide and the conductor of the faithful. A hundred horses stand ready saddled for me and my train at the holy city, and as many at the city of refuge. I am he who shall bear witness, and this is one of my Horus.' "'Thou liest!' answered the female, interrupting her companion in tones yet shriller than his own. "'I am none of thy, Horus, and thou art no such infidel trash as the Mohammed of whom thou speakest. May my curse rest upon his coffin. I tell thee, thou ass of Issachar, thou art King Arthur of Britain, whom the fairy stole away from the field of Avalon, and I am Dame Guenevar, famed for her beauty.' "'But in truth, noble sir,' said the male dwarf, "'we are distressed princes.' 
dwelling under the wing of King Guy of Jerusalem, until he was driven out from his own nest by the foul infidels. Heaven's bolts consume them. Hush! said a voice from the side upon which the knight had entered. Hush, fools, and be gone. Your ministry is ended. The dwarves had no sooner heard the command than, gibbering in discordant whispers to each other, they blew out their lights at once, and left the night in utter darkness, which, when the pattering of their retiring feet had died away, was soon accompanied by its fittest companion. Total silence. The knight felt the departure of these unfortunate creatures a relief. He could not, from their language, manners, and appearance, doubt that they belonged to the degraded class of beings, whom deformity of person and weakness of intellect recommended to the painful situation of appendages to great families, where their personal appearance and imbecility were food for merriment to the household. Superior in no respect to the ideas and manners of his time, the Scottish knight might, at another period, have been amused by the mummery of these poor effigies of humanity. But now their appearance, gesticulations, and language broke the train of deep and solemn feeling with which he was impressed, and he rejoiced in the disappearance of the unhappy objects. A few minutes after they had retired, the door at which he had entered opened slowly, and, remaining ajar, discovered a faint light arising from a lantern placed upon the threshold. Its doubtful and wavering gleam showed a dark form reclined beside the entrance, but without its precincts, which, on approaching it more nearly, he recognized to be the hermit, crouching in the same humble posture in which he had first laid himself down, and which, doubtless, he had retained during the whole time of his guests continuing in the chapel. "'All is over,' said the hermit, as he heard the knight approaching, "'and the most wretched of earthly sinners, "'with him who should think himself most honoured "'and most unhappy among the race of humanity, "'must retire from this place. "'Take the light, and guide me down the descent, "'for I must not uncover my eyes "'until I am far from this hallowed spot.' "'The knight obeyed in silence, "'for a solemn and yet ecstatic sense of what he had seen.' had silenced even the eager workings of curiosity. He led the way, with considerable accuracy, through the various secret passages and stairs by which they had ascended, until at length they found themselves in the outward cell of the hermit's cavern. The condemned criminal is restored to his dungeon, reprived from one miserable day to another, until his awful judge shall at length appoint the well-deserved sentence to be carried into execution. As the hermit spoke these words, he laid aside the veil with which his eyes had been bound, and looked at it with a suppressed and hollow sigh. No sooner had he restored it to the crypt from which he had caused the Scot to bring it, than he hastily and sternly said to his companion, "'Begone, begone! To rest, to rest! You may sleep, you can sleep! I neither can nor may!' Respecting the profound agitation with which this was spoken, the knight retired into the inner cell. But casting back his eye as he left the exterior grotto, he beheld the anchorite stripping his shoulders with frantic haste of their shaggy mantle, and ere he could shut the frail door which separated the two compartments of the cavern, he heard the clang of the scourge, and the groans of the penitent under his self-inflicted penance.' 
A cold shudder came over the knight, as he reflected what could be the foulness of the sin, what the depth of the remorse, which, apparently, such severe penance could neither cleanse nor assurge. He told his beads devoutly, and flung himself on his rude couch, after a glance at the still-sleeping Moslem, and, wearied by the various scenes of the day and the night, soon slept as sound as infancy. Upon his wakening in the morning, he held certain conferences with the hermit upon matters of importance, and the result of their intercourse induced him to remain for two days longer in the grotto. He was regular, as became a pilgrim, in his devotional exercises, but was not again admitted to the chapel in which he had seen such wonders. End of chapter 5